Well, I'm returning this morning back from a two-week vacation from the Gospel of John, back to the Gospel of John. And so we're going to pick up where we left off uh, at the end of November. We took a Christmas series in December. We did a Back to Basics series in January. But as a, a church that, by the grace of God, is aspiring to be a biblically saturated church, then what we want is just expository messages. And so we're going to go back to... Uh, John chapter 5. I just, before we even get into the message, if you are married, can I just have your eyes just for a moment? Can I just ask a favor of you this afternoon? Uh, Would you take some time with you and your spouse and just pray whether God would want you to go to the marriage retreat that is in February? I think you see the information there in your bulletin. And then here's who I would like to go to that marriage retreat. Those whom God is leading, right? Uh, who, who should go to the marriage retreat? If, if God is leading, I would think it would be the people who are experiencing a very healthy marriage. And you go there to celebrate. Maybe you'll see some other people at church. And you can come alongside them and encourage them. Maybe you would say, we don't have the best marriage, but we're somewhere in the middle, and and you can get at least one truth here that would help you in your pursuit to to have a more godly marriage. Or maybe things aren't going well for you at all, and there would be just a great reminder for you of what the Bible has to say about marriage. It's occurred to me that we don't think anything of taking our vehicles to get the tires rotated and the oil changed. We don't think anything about going and, and, and spending money for a monthly membership to maintain our body. Uh, ladies, you don't think anything about getting your hair done regularly or your nails. We don't think anything about going to the dentist twice a year to maintain the quality of our teeth. But what do we do with the treasure that God has given to us in our marriage? And are we really maintaining that? Uh, we believe so much in, in the, the blessing of the marriage that what we have said this year is we will pay for you to go. It's on us. And if you sense the Lord's leadership to go, uh, please contact the church. Miss Ginger will register you. And we will cover the expense because we value marriage and we value you. Um, now, if you're watching this on the Internet, and you are not living in Green Bay, not at all connected to Highland Crest, as we've already had one do this, and say, what, we can get something free? Uh, we we want to, we'll register for that. Um, it's not for you, okay? <laughs> Here's why. Because we want to walk with you. We want to walk with you in having a healthy marriage. Okay, so there's your commercial break for that. Let's look at John chapter 5. In a moment, I'm going to hit some context for you. But we're going to read verses 30 through the end of the chapter. John chapter 5, Jesus is saying these words. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Know that the witness that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. 
He was burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in my own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And Father, we thank you for this great passage here that speaks about the witnesses that came alongside and said, this is Jesus. Jesus is sent by God. Jesus is from God. Jesus is God. Now I would pray that you would use your word again to drive home this message, that it would change and tenderize our hearts, that we would become devoted followers caught up in awe of this wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just give you a bit of a background from this passage of which we just read. In John chapter 5, the first several verses tell the story of Jesus performing a miracle. He heals an invalid, a man that had been paralyzed for 38 years. One would think this would be a cause of celebration for not only the man that was healed, but also Jesus. Instead, it was a cause of accusations. Why? Because he had done it on the Sabbath. As we look at John chapter 5, we see in verse 17, it says, Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Translation, the Sabbath is made for man. You need the day of rest. But God is always working. The Son, myself, I am always working as well. How did they interpret that? Look at what it says in verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Bingo. That's exactly what he was saying that he is God, he is equal with God. Understandably, these people who were not followers of Jesus were up in arms and upset with this claim. And so then we get to the passage that we had just read here today. First, we had this continuing conversation, but now let us consider this, that claims are confirmed by witnesses. Jesus has made this claim that he is God, that he has been sent from God. But in the Old Testament scriptures, as well as the New Testament scriptures, whenever there was a charge or there was a claim, 
It always needed to be verified by at least two or three witnesses. If you have an outline, you see some scriptural passages for that. I could have included more. He says in John 5, verse 31, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And what he was doing is he was fulfilling the scriptures. I've made this claim that I am from God, but you all need some witnesses, don't you? And we, we experience some of that even today. There are times where I have the honor of officiating a wedding. And there at the end of that ceremony, there will be a time where the bride and groom have what's called a, a marriage license, and they need to sign it. But if you remember, there's also another blank for a witness where the maid of honor and the best man also provide a signature. There's been times where my wife and I have voted absentee. And so when you do that, you not only sign it, but there needs to be a signature of a witness. Maybe you have some documents down at your community or credit union or your, your bank, and sometimes you need a witness. And so Jesus here is saying, I want to provide some witnesses to you. I've just made this claim that I am indeed from God, but I'm not making that on my own. In fact, let me give you four witnesses that will all confirm about what I have just said. And that's what you have in this passage. Four witnesses that testify that Jesus is God. As you read this passage, you might have heard the word witness over and over again. So the first witness that we read about in this passage is that of John the Baptist. John the Baptist. It says there in verse 32, There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Verse 33, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. The first witness that Jesus has sent from God is John the Baptist himself. One scholar that I read this week named R.C. Sproul said, at this time of the writing, or this time of Jesus' ministry, at the very early of his ministry, it's possible that John the Baptist was actually known more widely than Jesus. People knew who John the Baptist was. He was one that proclaimed that everyone needed to repent of their sins. He was like a plow that tore up the ground, preparing it for the seed. He was a bulldozer that flattened man's goodness and self-assurance, paving the way for a new carpenter. He was the stump remover that dug out the lifeless, man-made traditions, making a way for the new hardwood trees. As it says here, he was like a lamp. And it says he was a burning lamp. And if you remember the story of John the Baptist, burning is a good adjective for him because he had zeal for the calling that God had on his life to prepare the way to preach repentance of sin for people. It also says there that this lamp, this burning and shining lamp, that people were willing to go there and rejoice for a while. Probably more in the summer when the temperatures are warm. 
but perhaps you have lamps on the outside of your house that with the warm glow of that lamp, moths accumulate and circle about. And this is what John the Baptist was like. He was out in a world of darkness, proclaiming the gospel light, the people of repentance, preparing the way for when Jesus would come. His message was this. There is a Savior that's going to help you with your sins. And like a lamp that burns out in time, John the Baptist did too. He must decrease that Jesus would increase. We read about his testimony in John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34, where it says, The next day he saw Jesus toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he whom I have said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and reign, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and have bore witness that this is the Son of God. So here's the first witness, and that is John the Baptist. Certainly, uh, Jesus could have included others like Peter and John. Eventually, they were witness of Jesus, but here it's only John the Baptist. A second witness that affirms that Jesus is sent from God, that he is God, are the miracles. Look at what it says in John 5, verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now, if you would remember the first few chapters of the Gospel of John, you remember there was a wedding in the second chapter. And in order to improve the reception, Jesus turned water into wine. In John chapter 4, there was a military official that had a son with some COVID-like symptoms. He had a fever, right? And out of love for that family, Jesus healed that son. And at the beginning here of John chapter 5, there was this man that was paralyzed for 38 years, and Jesus had a miraculous work of healing him. One has counted 37 miracles that Jesus performed in the Gospels. Now, what exactly is this all about? Is it about water to wine? Next week, it'll be feeding the, the 5,000 with bread and fish. Is, is Jesus about our drink, our food? Is he about healing? Or is there something greater going on here with these works? When Nicodemus understood it, and when he visited Jesus in John chapter 3, he came up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus understood that these signs proved that Jesus had come from God. We could review that verse there in John 20, verses 30, 31 that says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, 
But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in His name. The purpose of these works, these miraculous works, were to prove that Jesus came from God. In the first sermon preached in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, at Pentecost, Peter said this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this is Jesus. These works bear witness that God had sent him. Let me give you a third witness that we see in this passage, and that is God the Father. You see it there in verses 37 and 38. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the word whom he has sent. Loved ones, can you think of a few different instances in the Gospels where the God the Father authenticated Jesus the Son's ministry? You can, can't you? Think of the baptism. Do you remember what he said there in Matthew 3? This is my Son, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Or how about at the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, where he said the same thing. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So you have three witnesses so far. You have John the Baptist. You have the miraculous works. You have God the Father. And all he needs are two or three witnesses, but he adds a fourth. And that is the Scriptures. Look here what it says at verse 39. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, this form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Look at verse 39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. For the Jew, scriptures were everything. In fact, as it says here, they think that in searching the scriptures, that equates to eternal life. You know, there's a work out there. It's not inspired. It's, uh, it's called Baruch. If you remember the story of, the, of Jeremiah the prophet, he had a secretary named Baruch, and this is allegedly him. I doubt that it is. But there is a writing out there in the Jews that said something like this. He who has acquired the words of the law has acquired eternal life. Or another uh, a verse in that Baruch says, He who has the law has a court of grace drawn around him in this world and in the world to come. But the Jews would only read the Scriptures and all they would see is the paper and the ink. They would not see who the Scriptures were pointing to. It was a basis for debate. It was a place of which they could make themselves feel good by mastering some of the concept of the Scriptures. But what Jesus is saying here is, you search the Scriptures, but you don't see me. You don't even know what the Scriptures are all about. 
Now, clearly, one could point out that there's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures that point to Jesus. And yes, I'm certain that he meant that. But he also meant the whole of scripture. All of it points to Jesus. And who were these scriptures written by? Certainly the Holy Spirit, but he used men. You know, I can remember uh, my first semester at seminary, I took what was called Old Testament survey. It was to, to go over the, uh, the first half of the Old Testament and just hit the high points of it. And our professor spent a great deal of time on who was the author of Genesis, or for that matter, the first five books of the Old Testament. I think we could have saved ourselves a lot of time if we would have just read John 5, 46, and 47. That says it was Moses. Moses was the author of these books, of, of the scriptures, right? This is a bit of a controversial thing here, I imagine. But we might have Jewish friends. We might even have Muslim friends that would say to us, I worship the same God that you do. You, you believe in the Old Testament scriptures? So do I. I worship that God of the Bible. We might have a slight little difference in that you might embrace Jesus and I don't. But we're using the same Bible. That's exactly the same audience that Jesus is speaking to here in John chapter 5. And what he is saying is, you don't know God because you don't know me. And we live in a day in which there's what's called pluralism or relativism, where there is this push. Not to say that you're wrong and this is right, this is true and and that is a lie. But what the scriptures would tell us here is that if you do not embrace Jesus, you do not embrace the God of the Bible. And I've had conversations with, with people who are Muslims, whether here in Green Bay or, or in Senegal, and, and there's this push of maybe towards hospitality and friendliness to say, we believe the same thing. You believe in God, we believe in God. You, you might believe a little bit different, a slight difference with Jesus. And it is not love to just allow that statement to go unchecked. The loving thing to do is to say, no, we do not believe in the same God because Jesus is God. And if you reject Jesus, you reject the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible embraces Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus came from God. They had this hang-up. That just by studying the scriptures, they could attain eternal life. William Barclay, one Bible teacher, said, The function of the scriptures is not to give life, but to point to him who alone can give life to men. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, I think provided a very helpful illustration. He said that, imagine you were in Chicago in what was called the Sears Tower, now called the Willis Tower. You were way up in that building with, with the glass to be able to look out. And as you looked at the skyline and you looked out at Lake Michigan as the sun was setting, you were just in awe of the beauty that was on the other side of the glass. And then there would be a, a man that's come beside you and says, this window 
is exquisite. And so he takes a, a pocket knife and he begins to scrape away at some of that window. Then he says, I am going to investigate the properties of this window and I'm going to study them. Would you like me to, to be able to come back to you and tell you all that I've discovered about this window? You would say, this man is crazy. The purpose of this window is to be able to look through it, to gaze at the beauty that is on the other side. The purpose of the Scriptures is not to argue over every little quibble, but to look through, to be able to see the beauty of Jesus and who God is in this glorious gospel that we have. I heard this week of a, of a New Testament scholar, rather a, a Greek scholar, his name was E.V. Ryu, and, and he was a, an expert in translating Greek from Homer, the, the ancient writers, Odyssey and Iliad, into uh, English translation. And he had done such a great job that he had a new assignment. He was given the New Testament to translate. And, and his son had a very astute things to say in preparation for that. He said, it's going to be interesting to see what Father will make of the four Gospels. It will even be more interesting to see what the four Gospels make of my Father. And as E.V. Ryu began to translate the New Testament, he began to see through the letters and the punctuation to the beauty of Jesus. And within a year, this once atheist became a follower of Jesus. So we look here at this passage. We see that there are four different witnesses that all attest that Jesus is sent from God, that he is God. There's John the Baptist. There are his miracles. There is God the Father. And then there is the Scriptures. I want to pause here and ask this question. Are there any other witnesses here this morning? We heard a witness stand right behind this pulpit in Roman Hamer just a little while ago that gave witness of how God has changed his life through Jesus Christ. But there is still room for you. This Last week, I listened to a story of a guy named George brought up in Russia, Prussia rather, in Europe. By anyone's account, he was an absolute thief as a scoundrel as a little boy. In fact, he would sometimes make his way into his father's office, who was a tax collector, and on occasion help him to sell some coins. He would get beaten for this, but the older he got, the more level of crime would increase. And one day he found himself in jail. He'd be brought home and he'd be beaten again by his dad. His dad had a dream for young George. One day that he would be a Lutheran pastor. Now that was back then when, when it wasn't so much about having a calling as it was just a job. And he thought this was a very respectable job. So he enrolled him at this school. And even though George went to church maybe three times a year, did not even have a Bible. He was studying to be a pastor. And he was among the most popular kids all on campus because at the pub, 
he could tell the best stories of all his tales of stealing and swindling others. And they loved it because he was studying to be a pastor. One day, one of his buddies that he would go to the pub and drink with uh, said, "Uh, I don't think I'm going to go to the pub with you tonight, George. He said, what do you mean? I've got something else I'm going to do. What what are you going to do? What's more important than hanging out with your friends at the bar? Actually, I'm going to a Bible study. What? Why would you ever do that, he said. And then the thought came into George's mind. You know what? I think I want to add a little bit more to my story repertoire. I think I want to tell a story of the time that George went to a Bible study. And he said to his friend, I'm going tonight with you to the Bible study. No, 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 you're not. You're going to embarrass me. Oh, no, I'm going to that Bible study. And he went to the Bible study. And he saw a group of people in a room that were sincere about searching the Scriptures. There was a man there that actually read a sermon. And he was just captivated by the truth that he heard. And that started, over the next few weeks, a desire to read the Scriptures for himself to see what they had to say. And you know what happened? He read it and he met Jesus with the Scriptures. And as he became a follower of Jesus, there was a call on his life to be a missionary. Now in that group, there was also a very attractive young lady. And so he went up to that young lady and he says, I'm excited to tell you that not only am I now a follower of Jesus, but I believe the Lord's leading me to be a missionary. And she said, that is awful. I could never marry a missionary. Have you seen the kind of clothes that they wear and the kind of carriages that they ride in? No, no way. George, you're going to have to choose between this calling or me. And at a very young stage in his Christian life, George said, I'm going to choose Jesus. He's God. He is worthy of my life. Not long after that, he needed to go home and talk to his dad. His dad was bent on him becoming a Lutheran pastor. Now, instead of being grateful for this great change that has taken place in his life, he said, do not waste your life being a missionary, George How are you going to be able to provide for a family doing that? And by the way, doesn't the Bible say, honor your father and mother? Honor me. And so after many days of praying and thought, he said, Dad, okay, I want to honor you. I'm going to go back to that school that you want me to. But I'm going to seek the Lord and what the Lord would have me to do. And up until this point, Dad, you've always provided for me in my schooling. But right now, I'm not going to accept another penny from you. I'm just going to trust the Lord. So he went back to that school, and after a little while, he began to feel the weight and the pressure of like, how in the world am I going to pay for tuition, my books, and room, and board? And then he thought, you know, this Jesus, who is God, I bet he could handle this situation for me as well. So he decided to pray. It seemed foreign to him, but he would pray for books and tuition and room and board, And as he got up, it was just a few moments later, and there was a knock at the door, and there was a professor from that college with an American beside him, an American professor, and he says, we need to hire you to be a translator. You can speak not only English, but you can also speak German. There are three different American professors here that want to hire you to help translate and be an interpreter. God met the need. 
there was still this burden on his heart to be a missionary. And so he would go and he would try to take some training to be a missionary. And, and he found himself being a pastor uh, in the England area. And one day he found himself in Bristol serving at a church. And as he was walking the streets, he saw a young lady. Ah, not a young lady, a young girl whose name was Emily. And she tugged on his jacket and asked for some coins. And he found out by talking to Emily that both her parents were gone. And she was a street child. And as he offered a coin or two to this young Emily, George, George Mueller, had a heart for the street child. And his eyes were open to all the orphans that were in this area. And if you know the rest of the story for George Mueller, he helped thousands of orphans over the years, not charging one of them for their care. And he said of this orphanage that God would would help him to lead. It was certainly about taking care of kids, but it was also about providing a symbol for God's people that God will meet the need. Through prayer, God will work miraculously provide for his work. Jesus is God. Jesus is worthy. He is not only worthy to save you of your sins, He is worthy of your life. Entrust your life to him today. As we wind this passage down, if Jesus is God, then he is worthy of your life. This morning, have you lost your awe of him? It's astonishing to me how capable we are of this. You can one day dream about a car, One day, that is my dream car. If I could get that car, I would be happy forever. You get that car, within two weeks, it's old. You walk into your dream home and say, I would be so happy if one day we could move into this. And within a month, you're like, it's lost its its appeal to us. It can even happen in your marriage, can't you? You can have a, a man of your dreams, a woman of your dreams. You marry them and... And a few months later, it's like you take them for granted. We can do the same with Jesus, but he is God. And may we recapture that awe of him. And so when you read your scriptures, loved ones, are you looking to see Jesus? And maybe this week you're being reminded again that you ought to be the witness, be the lamp that shines the light of Jesus. As uh, Miss Vanna comes and plays the piano, and we prepare our heart to just to wind this message down, and also for the Lord's Supper. I want you to give this some thought. Have you entrusted your life to Jesus? There's room for other witnesses to testify of his saving power, of the power in his life to share with others. Perhaps God would remind you today to be that witness for those around you. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, run through this passage today that is so important, we're reminded of what Jesus had to say about himself, that he was sent from God, that he is God. And this was affirmed by witnesses whether it was John the Baptist or the miracles or the 
God the Father or the Scriptures, but it's also being affirmed all around us today by witnesses who have found this to be true as well in their life. They've been forgiven of their sins. They're seeing the power of God exhibited in their life. So we, we worship Jesus for that today. We say thank you. And then, friend, as you're sitting there right now, have you come to this place of understanding that Jesus will forgive you of your sins because he is God. He is also worthy of bearing the weight of all of your life. And he will lead your life better than you can. Yes, be forgiven, but would you be willing to repent and say, I don't want to lead my life anymore. Jesus, you lead my life. I want to follow your will for my life. If that's you, right right where you're at, why don't you pray that in your own words in sincerity to him? Father, what a wonderful thing for us, even those who might be witnesses who've already experienced that are already children of God to be able to just say, that's right, God. I want Jesus to be Lord of my life. I, I want him to rule my life. Only he is worthy of that. So you're king and, and you call the shots. You direct things in my life. There's some things that you are not pleased with. Help me to let go of them. By your grace, I want to do so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have done that today, that's your first time, and you are a follower of Jesus, we would love to talk to you more about that. From time to time, when we have a, a group of people that are new believers, we like to do a new believer class. And we would be uh, thrilled to offer that. So you let us know, and we would be able to be happy to walk with you through what it looks like to be a Christian and live for Jesus.